Hi, it's Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's Hard to Find Seminars.com. And this is the beginning of part two of my interview with Ben Gay III. The title of this interview is called Discover the Motherload of Marketing and Sales War. Ben Gay interview part two. Now, although my first interview with Ben was full of fascinating stories and invaluable selling secrets, believe it or not, there's more. On top of his legendary status as a world-famous salesman, sales trainer, author, consultant, and speaker, Ben Gay is the founder and executive director of the National Association of Professional Salespeople with a membership in the six figures. And talk about inspiration. Ben spent 12 hours a weekend for five straight years years at San Quentin with his People Builders program that successfully enabled his students to get off the prison merry-go-round and reduce recidivism by over 80%. And get this, he even did time with Charles Manson. On top of that, he was the attitude coach for the crews of Apollo 15, 16, and 17, working with astronauts Alan Shepard and Jim Irwin. While his stories about his brushes with the famous and the infamous are captivating and inspirational, you can't afford to miss the sales and marketing wisdom that he reveals in this interview. For instance, you're going to hear the secret of closing and how to become a master closer. You'll learn why confidence is your most important asset and how to build it. You'll learn how Ben took a catchphrase and turned it into a gold mine. You'll learn how to take an objection and turn it into a benefit that closes the sale. You'll learn how to become a sales infiltrator, some of the most prolific and most important teachings on what selling is all about. You'll learn how to use the internet to multiply your sales. You'll learn step-by-step phases of his foolproof sales process. You'll learn the magical ingredient that separates the closers from all other sales training programs and much, much more. Ben Gay tells you about selling the way it really is and not the way we all wish it was. So turn in to radio station WIIFM, What's In It For Me, and get ready to learn information about the selling process that you won't hear anywhere else. Now let's get going. Let me ask you this. Give me a definition of what professional selling is. Your definition. Well, if you go through the basic levels that I tend to talk about, you've got the person who shouldn't be in selling, period. That's about 20% of all salespeople. And I say that in every seminar. 20% of you shouldn't be here. You know it. I know it. And the person who hired you is beginning to suspect it. Get on with your life. At the first break, say you're going to go get a cigarette, get in your car, and go home. So there's that group. Then you have the order takers. There's order takers in all businesses, no matter what the size of what they're selling and so on. But when I picture an order taker, it's, you know, you walk into a store and somebody says, can I help you? You know, that's an order taker. If you want a toaster, you pick it up, take it to her, and she writes it up. Then you have salespeople who understand their job is to get you to spend now and perhaps more than you intended to spend now. And then you have closers. And now we're getting into the professional salesperson's level, the early stages of it. Closers know that at the end of a logical sales presentation, there should be a close, an end to the story a call for action. In other words, this isn't just a socialization process. I'm here to sell. And there are techniques for learning how to sell. And most people selling cars aren't closers, but that's sort of where you start picking them up. Bigger ticker items in almost every store situation, you'll find one of them. And they know to guide the conversation, and they know why they're there. Then we have master closers. 
and now you're right dead center in the heart of what a professional capital P salesperson is. A master closer knows about you before you leave home. When he or she sees you coming across the lot, he's making decisions, sizing things up. Let's say you're in a situation where you got to see your car, looked at the car, looked at the tires on the car. A brand new Cadillac with bald tires is a very interesting situation. My dad always said he was a master closer. I hadn't created the term yet, but he was a master closer and didn't know it. Dad said always check the tires on the car, their fingernails. He was looking for people who get them primarily, but dirty or unclipped was another one. Then he said get behind them and check Check the heels on their shoes. That'll tell you far more than their bank account will tell you. To see if they're worn out? Yeah, worn down and so on. Because it may be that a person with worn down heels is your best customer because whatever you're selling helps people who are maybe a little down on their luck. If you were selling a business opportunity to somebody who bit their fingernails to the quick, a master closer would catch that and ignore much of the bluster and so on that this person puts forth because he would have a little bit better idea of what's going on. A master closer, let's say he's a speaker like I am, I can stand in front of, oh, at about a thousand people, they begin to blur together, but you still watch the front ones. Ten thousand, you have to watch the front ones, but if I'm in a room of, oh, a thousand or less, 500, I feel real good about, I can tell you what the reaction to what I'm saying is, is on almost every person in the room. With 500 or less? Yeah, I mean, literally every one. I always can sense the mood, but literally every one, which enables me to turn right in the middle of a speech and say, you, sir, you have doubts about what I'm talking about. Stand up and tell me what they are. We'll get them cleared up. I want to be of help to you. And he pops up, and he's got a doubt. I mean, it was obvious. So master closers, whether they're speaking on the stage or working on a car lot or selling insurance or pre-need funeral policies or home improvement or whatever, that's sort of the situation they're in, and that's the sweet spot of professional salespersonship. Then we have sales infiltrators, which is the term I coined, and it's the title of the last chapter in the closers part two starts on page 257. If anybody's ever listening to this and happens to have the closers part two, stop what you're doing, turn to page 257 and read it. From there to the back of the book is the most profound thing ever written about selling. It says exactly what a master closer is, does, and how to be one and takes you to that next level of sales infiltration. The sales infiltrator isn't an outside force dealing with you like in a ping pong match. A sales infiltrator gets inside of you, becomes part of your team, and helps the team make decisions. He or she almost disappears from the process. While inside the prospect, mentally, he or she is captain of the team. There's a lot of different sales training out there. How is your closer series different than some of the other sales training out there, maybe from Tom Hopkins or Zig Ziglar? You know, when people see maybe the closers one, some will say it's outdated or kind of harsh and cruel. It is harsh, I'll tell you that. It's politically incorrect. But every time I've gone to sort of smooth it out a little bit, there's an uproar because people say, don't you dare mess with it. That's like penciling corrections in the Bible. We will continue to do a little mental adjustment in our heads for various things. But the lessons taught in the closer are the truth. Now, to answer your question about what's different about it, and I don't mean different versus everybody, the greatest book on selling, I may never even seen or heard about. I don't know. I hadn't heard about the closers for a long time either. But the difference is it's selling and life the way it really is, not the way we wish it was. It is sales with the bark ripped off. 
and exposed. Now, I have a choice, and I've done it for other people. I've written about 12 books under my name and 12 books, roughly. Someone told me that was what was in the file. But in that, I commit the sin that the closers doesn't commit when I'm doing it for other people. Other people want sort of a vanilla eyes thing that won't offend anyone, and that's fine. There's a place for that. But I learned by people grabbing me figuratively by the throat and telling me the absolute truth. And I just swear by that, because if it were not for that, you and I wouldn't be talking today. There was no way on earth I could go from the way I was operating by reading milk toast books and going to milk toast seminars, because it wouldn't have made me change. But as Earl Nightingale says, if you want a warm feeling, take a bath. The king of motivation told me one time, he said, motivation is like wetting on yourself in a blue serge suit. It feels good, and no one can tell. So that's the difference with the closers. People laugh, friends of mine, and friendly competitors and so on. And some of the people that we've talked about have said, sitting around a dinner table after they were done or I was done or we were all done, they all said they wish they'd written the closers. And it was the best thing out there. Everybody knows that. If they're a hardcore commission salesperson, if you worked at Walmart and wanted the closers, I'd tell you not to waste your time. For more information on Ben Gay's seminars, books, and products in the Closer series, go to www.bengaytheclosers.com. That's www.bengaytheclosers.com. You've had a lot of students go through your programs and read your books. What's the common denominator you find where people fail when it comes to using the closures methodology? Well, the number one failure is they don't read it to start with. They buy it, and then it sits on their credenza or in their briefcase or whatever, and they never read it. And that's what happens to the vast majority of material sold in probably all the self-improvement industry. Do you know any stats on that officially? No, I've just been around long enough and been in enough offices where I meet somebody who I know bought my material because that's how come I'm there giving a speech and I look on their desk and there's the closers and I'm always thrilled and I pick it up and the binding has never been cracked. Let me tell you a quick funny story. This funny raft we get past the fact that my one brother-in-law go committed suicide. So I had to fly back to Atlanta and be with my sister and comfort her and pick out the suit he was going to wear and all the stuff that goes with that. So we're out at the cemetery and we're going to pick out the place where he's going to be and the salesman's saying he should be on a hill because there's a much better view. It's also twice the price. <laughs> I said he's dead. He's going to be enjoying the view. And I want my sister in her old age to be able to get to it easily. Show me something on the flat land near the road. He was a nice guy, and we sort of tussled back and forth. As we go back into the office to fill out the paperwork, my sister Jane and I sit down across the desk from him, and I look behind him on his credenza. And he's here, but the closers. And I said, the closers, what an interesting title. I said, what is that about? And the blood drained out of his face. And he said, well, in the cemetery industry, we don't just bury someone. We excavate the grave. We call it opening the grave. We put the vault in, we put the casket in, then we close the grave. And so that's what that is, the closers. It's about closing graves. Oh, that's hilarious. It was pretty quick on his feet. When my sister and he went out to pick out the marker, that was the one thing I figured, how bad could that be? I mean, what's he going to do to over there? I took the book out of this thing, autographed it, and I said, nice comeback, all the best. 
and gave the third and put my business card in it. Go back out in the lobby, meet him again, take Jane by the hand. We walk out in the parking lot. He goes back in his office, and I'm watching in the rearview mirror. The front door of the place flies open again. He's standing there with a book in his hand, looking up the driveway after the car. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. What do you think, Ben, is the most effective and economical way to sell nowadays with the Internet and everything and all this technology? Well, the Internet is wonderful if you know enough about it or can hire somebody to do it. If you're my age, I mean, I know how to do email, but we have a very active and successful presence on the web. But that's passive income. What a godsend. We sell more books through Amazon than we used to sell, period, 25 years ago. And we don't do anything but ship them cases of books two or three times a week or whatever it is. So the Internet is absolutely wonderful, wholeheartedly endorse it. Anybody who's selling anything ought to have at least a primitive website, and you can get those template situations where even a primitive one that doesn't do much looks good. So absolutely think it's wonderful. Some types of selling has to be done face-to-face. And I don't mean that you can't do it on the web. You know, I've talked to people for an hour trying to get them to buy a sales trainer's executive package, for instance. And yet, almost every morning when I go to the office, there's a report on my desk showing that three, four, five, fifteen, or whatever, people went to the website and ordered the same package without any trouble or resistance. They just ordered it. Some people need face-to-face, so let's back up from the web to the telephone. People say, you know, you've got to write a book now about telephone selling. I said, the closers covers all types of selling. Telephone selling isn't different. You think it's different. Let me tell you from somebody who's done both, which most of them haven't done. I started out, you know, after we got through lawn mowing and so on, the first thing that, where I got in a car and had to go somewhere was as a manufacturer's rep for George Fryson and Associates. And I was driving all over the southeastern United States, 50 miles between appointments. And this sounds funny now to people that would be listening, but if you're my age or so on, you remember the days, it was almost cheaper to drive 50 miles to see if someone was there than to phone them. Long-distance calls were very expensive. Gas was very cheap. And the highways weren't jammed up where they were like, you know, long parking lots. I remember I drove one time all the way to Fort Valley, Georgia from Atlanta. Drove all the way to Fort Valley, Georgia to meet with the Bluebird Wander Lodge buyer doing the custom homes and found out he didn't meet with salespeople on Wednesdays. So I stayed overnight at the Howard Johnson's. I'll never forget it because it was my first night on the road as an individual, paying my own bill and waited to see him the next day. Now, I could have made 50 successful phone calls in the period of time that little jaunt took me. So I used the exact same techniques on the phone, the exact same presentation on the phone that I do in person, that I do on the Internet, that I do from a stage in front of hundreds or thousands of people. The only difference is I don't drive 50 miles between calls. I'm not wearing out my car. One of our cars, I just noticed yesterday, has 50,000 miles on it. Well, the car is over five years old. That shows you how big a driver I am. So those are the different types of selling, face-to-face, on the phone, Internet, whatever. But the procedure, the needs stay the same. People still tune in to the radio station, WIII-FM, what's in it for me. And if you can explain to them what's in it for them on the phone, you win. And so do they if you're selling a good product. And if you can explain it face-to-face, you win. Or on the Internet, you win. Or in newspapers or whatever. My wife says, you know, someday when we're retired, I love what I'm doing.
and try to set a goal or a timeline of 75, I'm going to retire. God may not let me get that far, but if he does, 75, that's it. Just because I like goals. And it suddenly dawned on me I didn't have one. I was just going to go till I dropped, I guess. So she said, when you're really retired and you've sold the business to somebody or somebody else is running for us, what do you think about having a little hardware store or something down on Main Street in Placerville? This is where gold was discovered. And I said, that would scare me to death. She said, what are you talking about? I said, I wouldn't know what to do. You know, a hardware store, first of all, that's a bad example because I'm not even allowed to have a hammer. I'm not very handy. But some little local business, I say, you put out your wares, be it a ice cream cone or a hot dog, and everybody looks at it and says, well, I don't really want that now. Thank you. And they go away. What are you going to do? Where, as soon as I got out of the lawn mowing business, I was into at least regional business as a marketing representative, and rather quickly, national businesses and then international businesses. Well, one of the benefits with the internet and the telephone is, if you're in a national business or a bigger scope business, it allows for mistakes. It's like you and I have talked about one time telling a joke in front of 10,000 people. The worst joke on earth gets a big laugh because there's enough goons in 10,000 people to find anything funny. And they'll save you and their laughter will spread and so on. Tell the same bad story in front of 12 people. The only thing you'll hear in the room is your heart beating. Well, if you get into a national, international business, or even a large regional business, I guess, and you put something out there, enough people will take it. And phone calls are so cheap and the Internet is virtually free that they'll save you. If you have a reasonably good idea, it's easier to sell on a larger scale than a smaller scale. For more exclusive interviews on business, marketing, advertising, and copywriting, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. If you were to tell me your most memorable sale over your career, is there something that pops out in your mind? The most memorable failure I ever had, and it taught me so much, was I was working with George Freisman Associates. One of the products was Indiana glass. That's that white milk glass when you go to a florist, you know, that your stuff comes in. That's Indiana glass, made by the Indiana Glass Manufacturing Company, probably in Indiana, as best I recall. And he had a closeout. There was a whole bunch of stuff, perfectly good, but they had changed their designs, and George Chrysler was such a top rep for them. They gave him a carload of this stuff. I say gave him, you know, dirt cheap, just get rid of it. He, being a kind man, said, the carload is yours, and here's what it costs. And I had item listings, you know, for every single product up and down the line. And he said, here's what it costs, and anything you sell above that, you may have. I said, wow. Well, lo and behold, my father, who I had worked for before, had a contact through the country club with a guy who owned the largest forest business in Atlanta. So I called and said, this is Ben Gay. I want to come see you. I didn't say Ben Gay third. I wanted to leave enough doubt that the secretary might think it was my dad coming. And I said, hi, and I'm Ben Gay. You know my dad, and I'm now with George Freisman Associates and Indiana Glass, and I know you're a big customer of it already. And he said, certainly. And I said, well, you're not going to believe this. And so I said, we've got this carload. I told him the story. I'd had the list redone with about a 20% markup, which was very, very fair. But 20% of that entire carload in my pocket would have radically changed my life. So I said, blah, 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 blah. And he said, okay, I'll take it. And I said, which one, sir? <laughs> For real, you really said which one? Yeah, I'll take it. What do you mean, it? Yeah, and what did he say when you said which one? He meant the carload. So I said, oh, 
okay. He said, let's do the EPO. And I said, super, and tapped my little cheap sport coat where you keep the pens. And there wasn't one there. So I reached in my pants pocket because it must have gone down there by mistake or something. It wasn't there. So I looked up at him and I said, excuse me, can I borrow a pen? He said, you don't have a pen? I said, well, you know, it's funny you should mention that I don't. I said, I must have lost it or something. He said, young man, I need that glass. I want that glass. I'm going to buy that glass, probably at regular prices throughout the year. But I'm going to teach you a lesson that's worth far more than whatever you're going to make selling me that. Salespeople don't go anywhere without pens. He stood up, shook my hand, and said, been nice to meet you, young man. I wish you the very best. He didn't buy. End of story. That is hilarious. Michael, unless I'm in the swimming pool or the shower, you will never catch me without a pen. And so he made me far more than I lost on the sale. Common sense tells you you ought to have a pen, but I was sort of lacking. Now, did your dad find out about that one? Yeah, my dad found out, but it didn't affect him. George Fryson was who I was working for by then. But, yeah, my dad found out about it. I don't think I told him because I was over there having dinner, and he said, you know, I was talking to Mr. Hall the other day. And I thought, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh. Got the entire story related back to me, including, you know, I could only see the look on his face. The story when I heard it from my father included the look on my face. (laughs) That's funny. You're listening to an interview on Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. Okay, that's a good failure story. Have it a successful one. Well, you made a lot of money, something really juicy. Probably as far as, wow, I just made a lot of money. It would have been one of the foreign franchises for Holiday Magic, probably England. So you were selling franchises throughout the world? Yeah. It wasn't like my job. I was president of the home office of the major company, but when somebody expressed the interest, they want to talk to the president and or the chairman of the board. So Bill Patrick, the owner of the company, tossed the ball to me. He said, this Captain Henderson, he's some big deal in England. He's sort of interested in what we're doing, and why don't you talk to him? So I called him after I figured out how you do that with time zones and everything. I wasn't the most sophisticated person you ever met in my 20s. And got him on the phone, and we chatted a little bit, and he said, would you come over and visit with me? And I said, well, I will once we've got a deal going, but I'm not going to fly over to sell you because we're going to sell it anyway. And there was this long pause and then a very proper British accent. My, you're secure, aren't you? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, this is a tremendous deal. You can come over here. I'll be happy to meet with you. And he said, how much should I bring with me? And I said, it's two and a half million dollars, on which I would have made and did make a quarter of a million. And he says, all right, I shall dispatch myself or whatever. Burn hand us a check for two and a half million dollars. And I made a quarter million dollars on the phone call. That was a pretty hardcore thing to say over the phone. Which was good. It's a master closer. You sell from a position of strength whenever possible. I've been in situations where that wasn't possible, I'm sure. But whenever possible, you sell from a position of strength, both personal financial strength personal strength in your beliefs, and then, as we talked about in the very first time we talked, you're selling quality products that are competitively priced to qualified people. Here's a great example. Quality products, cosmetic at the time, science advances, but at the time was as fine as any product on earth because that was all we would put in. It was the very best components, and we hired Mort Scott to put it together for us. He's the one who did Bromo Seltzer, Sally Hansen, Hard as Nails, and a whole bunch of things. He was famous before he joined us, and we gave him free reign. You make sure nobody can ever call us on the quality of the products. We had a quality product. It's competitively priced. You have to be or you're out of business. You know, the trade takes care of that and talk to qualified people. Captain Henderson had millions. I forget what the exchange rate was at the time. I said two and a half million. He said, that would be fine. And they said, is that pounds or dollars? 
And I wasn't sophisticated. <laughs> oh, I hope you said dollars. <laughs> I did say dollars, but yeah. he was willing to pay two and a half million pounds. And even then, a pound was worth about two to a dollar. So it wouldn't have changed. We would have sold it for what it was. But that shows my lack of sophistication. I said, well, dollars, of course. There's people who want to be in sales. And when you talk about selling from a position of strength, we're talking a lot about just plain old confidence. And I'm sure you meet a lot of salespeople who just don't have it, but who want to get in professional selling. What do you tell these people how to gain confidence when it comes to professional selling? You get with a company that's selling the quality product, et cetera. You find out what their scripted presentation is. And if they don't have one, encourage them to get one quickly. Scripting is probably the most important key after you get past quality product. You learn to do it by the numbers. In the early days, I told you I made nothing. The first six months, I was in big-time selling. In the next six months, I made $110,000 part-time in 1966 dollars. And the way I started making money was I started doing it by the numbers. I'd memorized word for word the presentation. And the first time I gave it and worked, which would have probably been within the first two presentations, I said this cringed internally. And they said, fine, and got out their checkbook. I remember thinking, wow, that's odd. Hadn't seen that before. (laughs) Then you give another one and another one. And after a while, you say and blah, blah, blah. And based on what you told me, this is what I recommend. Fair enough. And I expect him to say yes. The confidence has grown where if I give a logical presentation with a lot of emotion in it, but nevertheless a logical presentation, heavy on the benefits, knowing who they are and what they need and what they want, and I handle it as our materials teach you to do. When I get down to the end, this is my most common close. What's your most common close? Based on what you've told me, here's what I recommend. Fill in the blank. Fair enough. Now, did you coin the fair enough? Well, fair enough, I'm sure, has been a term since English was invented. But as far as fair enough in selling, yeah, years ago, the Wilson Learning Corporation in Minneapolis, Larry Wilson and his gang, taught us all, feel, felt, found. I know how you feel. I felt the same way. Here's what others have found, or here's what I found, or whatever. Well, it was so popular and so effective, it got where when you started to say that to a prospect, they'd start it with you and say, I know how you feel. Oh, really? Tell me what you found. (laughs) It got overused. Now I'm getting where waitresses and coffee shops are saying fair enough to me. And I stumbled across it because I'm more like a tuning fork. I can sense what's going on in a room. If I'm talking to you on the phone, in person, whatever, and you decide to buy, I feel an atmospheric pressure change. Whether you know you've just bought or not, I do. In fact, if it's over the phone where you can't see me, I start writing up the order. I know how this is coming out. So I've become really sensitive to it. And that's one of the hard things about teaching what I do. But on the other hand, it's better because most people can't be hard closers. They don't have the courage or they were raised to be too polite. (laughs) You know, when somebody says, get out of my house, they get out. You know, there's a variety of reasons, but the vast majority of people can never be taught to be hard closers. You say this, I say that. they got to say no seven times before they'll buy. Stay in there till the eighth call, and then you go in and say, well, they left. You know, they didn't buy. Well, did you ask them seven times? No, I only asked them five times before they told me to drop dead. Well, that's the reason, you see, if you'd only asked three more times. Well, that's just not the way most people are built. So I found that if I did the heavy lifting up front, and when I started teaching other people that, I found a very receptive audience. You do the heavy lifting up front as 
Doug Edwards taught me years ago, if you have built-in objections, bring them up first and brag about them. Don't leave them to chance. Don't wait for the other shoe to drop. Cover that. Make it a benefit, but bring it up first and brag about it. If you've been in selling with one product line 30 days, you've heard every objection on earth that there is. There just aren't any more. So if it's one you're going to hear every time, you build it into your presentation, bring it up first and brag about it. If it's, you know, Rolls Royces are expensive, you might as well talk about that. Don't leave that to the end when they go, oh, I thought this was going to be $40. And then you guide them along and you ask questions and you listen, listen. Most people can't stand the sound of silence. They have to fill it with something. You listen to what they're saying. Most people will tell you how they'll buy, what they'll buy, when they'll buy, and if they need to finance it. And then when you're done, you can say confidently, based on what you've told me, here's what I recommend. Fair enough. And it's just astounding. I mean, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Now, please understand, Michael, I have laid foundations earlier. Not in every presentation it doesn't need it, but in most presentations, all big ticket presentations, all serious, you know, life-changing presentations for them. I start out with a little introduction. You know, hi, how are you? And the warm-up, and I become their friends, and oh, you're a bowler, and this is a cute little dog. But rather quickly, I say, let me tell you how I like to work with people, because I think you'll like this. I believe that you deal with people fairly, squarely, decently, by the rules. Fair enough? They always say fair enough and shake a hand. I say, super. And I want to deal with you in what I call a straight, straight manner. That means you be straight with me, I'll be straight with you. If I have a question, I want your permission now to ask it. And if you have a question of me about anything, I'm hereby giving you permission to ask it. Let's not come to a good or bad decision based on misinformation. Straight, straight. Fair enough? Fair enough. They shake hands. Now, see, that wipes out. I go through the whole presentation with some prospects, and then we get down to the end. They lose their nerve and say they want to think about it. They want to call their imaginary financial advisor. They want to check with a brother-in-law they hope they'll have someday. They got to check with so-and-so, and and I laugh, and they laugh. I never hear that at the end. You see, you knock it down up front, and then benefit, 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 benefit. Listen, 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 listen. Benefit, benefit, benefit. Based on what you told me, here's what I recommend. Do selling stories in your sales presentation or in selling hold an important role? Big part. Now, they're scripted. I don't mean you just sit around and tell stories. Almost everything I do is scripted. If I've told you a story today or related something that I've ever told anywhere before, you know, you're controlling the order of what we talk about. But I've told it before. And when I told it, it was word for word. There's maybe 7% recidivism rate in San Quentin, meaning that only 5% of people builders have had years to study it and so on. I figured out what people are going to probably be interested in, and so I put together in my mind the best ways to relate that information. I don't want to just have my whole life in sales presentations, everything structured, and then start coming off with wild things on the fly. It could destroy everything. Hal Holbrook does Mark Twain. I don't know Hal Holbrook, but here's what I've read. His evening, he does an hour-and-a-half presentation with the intermissions, two hours, of Mark Twain stories. Every one of them verbatim, right off of Mark Twain's pen. But he knows eight-and-a-half hours of Mark Twain. And he has never given the same show twice. 
He tells one opening story, and I don't know what it is, but it's some surefire thing. It's like when I get up in front of an audience, as soon as the applause dies down, I say, let's get this Ben Gay thing out of the way. It's a built-in objection. We wonder if this goofball knows there's a back rub named after it. have several amusing stories about it. We wanted to name my son Ben Gay the fourth. My wife objected. We decided to call him Absorbing Junior. <laughs> well, you picture 10,000 people reacting like you just did, but that's word for word. So Hal Holbrook has some surefire Mark Twain story, and he knows how they ought to react to it. And based on how they react, better than he expected or worse than he expected, he alters the rest of his performance. Remember how old jukeboxes used to work? The arm went up and got the record and brought it down and drops it down on the turntable and plays the song he has. Hal Holbrook reaches back into his selection of eight and a half hours of Mark Twain material and based on the reaction to the first one, and then he says he continues shuffling based on the reactions. They're not into little boy stories. Super. I got six hours that don't say anything about little boys. So he uses some others, and he walks off the stage two hours from when he started, and he always gets standing, screaming ovations, and it's 100% scripted. Do you have a script book, like a playbook, in your office where if you ever needed to reference something? No. Now, I did for years. I started out with it looked like the Sears catalog in front of me. Say this, I say that, and so on. If you're starting out, I highly recommend it, but I would be lying to you if I told you now, because my wife is forever telling me I have more stories now than anybody wants to listen to, and I know them by heart, so I don't need the playbook. So tell me the one about you being the coach to the astronauts. One of our top distributors in Holiday Magic was Jean Harrington. Her husband, Jim Harrington, who dutifully came to the meetings and acted like he was interested, was actually a extremely brilliant whatever you are if you work with rockets. I don't even know the title of it. He was, however, the chef supervisor of the Manned Space Program at Cape Kennedy, Florida. So he was in charge of three Apollo shots three when I was down there, but he would do like every other one because somebody else has got the other one set up in the vehicle assembly building, and so they have the every other one. There were two people with his title. I went down and did some talks in Florida for them, and they were such nice people. They became social friends as well as business friends, and he said, you know, what we need is some of that at NASA. They had just been through this thing where they were nearing the end of the Apollo program, and the way they think, you know, if you're shooting 14 off, and you're going to shoot 17, it's over, because they think so far in advance, and they've trained so far in advance, and so on. So he said, we're nearing the end, and the private contractors are beginning to lay off people. And then NASA, right in the middle of that, and we're all friends, we all live in the same neighborhood, and people were starting to just drive by the bank and drop their keys in the slot and just abandon their house. Blocks of property down there unlived in. And he said, right in the middle of all that, with all the depression that that causes, mental depression, he said, NASA announces a large wage increase for us. And he said, that turned people against people and so on. So we went over to the base the next morning just to give me the courtesy tour. And Apollo 14 was about to take off, and Alan Shepard was the commander on it, originally from the Mercury program. And Shepard's on the intercom, and I'm dramatizing this. He was upbeat and high, but commanders don't normally have to get on there and talk about anything over the PA system. He was virtually begging them to put together the rockets so he could get back home to his family. 
the morale was so bad. And he was the one, interestingly enough, in the glory days of the space program, who said it only bothered him when he sat on top of Mercury and realized the entire thing had been put together by the lowest bidder. So he had a sense of the problem. Now you got the lowest bidder and bad morale. Jim says, you hear that? And he said, yeah. And he said, well, why don't you do some work with us? And I said, what can I do? He says, do that stuff you do at Holiday Magic with some of our people, the ground crews, flight crews, and so on. I said, fine. He said, I'm going to invite some of them over to the house. So he brought over the crew of Apollo 15. The commander of that shot was Jim Irwin, one of the nicest people in the world. When he left NASA, he started a ministry called Operation High Flight. Unfortunately, way too young, he died of a heart attack. But Jim Irwin listened to me, and he said, I'm taking you to the head of the space agency. Back then, the two top guys at the Cape were Dr. Miles Ross and Dr. Davis. The next morning, I'm sitting in an office with Jim Harrington, Davis Ross, and Jim Irwin. And Jim Irwin introduces me. He says, this is the attitude coach for Apollo 15, 16, and 17. How can we best use him? And so I did some seminars for the ground crews and the flight crews and so on, and with the nickname, the Attitude Coach. Now, of the two things people talk about most in my life, one is San Quentin. They're just fascinated by it. You sat in a room with Charlie Manson, my God, you know. And the other one is the astronauts. Neither one was I paid for. My two most exciting sales, I was not paid for. During sales presentations, a lot of salespeople believe that they have to present and they need to make a presentation, whether it's with a PowerPoint or a slide presentation, or they need to present facts. Is there any negatives about presenting facts or putting on a sales presentation, or what advice would you give a salesperson who's putting on a sales quote-unquote presentation to sell something? First way in that base I told you, straight, straight fairly squarely, decently by the rules. You get all that in. Then you do what I call a warm-up, where you get on a personal level with them and begin the sales infiltration process. And then I'm very open about things. The answer to your question is yes, your presentation is terribly important, and scripted is terribly important. It allows for dogs walking into the room, and you know not everybody went to prospect school, but it gives you that track to run on. But I announce what we're going to do. There's an old speaking adage, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. Tell them what you told them. So I say, I'm here to explain the XYZ product to you and to work with you and so on. And the best way to do that is to go through it step by step. So with your help and cooperation, I'm going to do that because this is really exciting. And then show business starts. Show business starts when you walk in the door. And I don't mean this in an insincere way because I love people when I meet them. I mean, you've got to really go out of your way for me not to like you. But when I go in, I am aware I am now in the warm-up process. I don't just wander in, you know, whistling, scratching my stomach, looking around. I know why I'm there. And when I get to the presentation, I know why I'm there, and I want to make sure they do. You know, we've had a lot of fun chatting. I look forward to chatting with you some more, but at some point, i got to explain the product to you. I'm not big on PowerPoints and slides. If you can possibly do it, I want the product there. But however your organization does it, you then give the presentation with feedback along the way as you go. And then at the end, you ask any questions. One of my best clients, Dixie Home Crafters, they have a wonderful pre-closing questions. They go through the whole presentation. They know where the person is they put on the show. And they say, any more questions? They either have them or they don't. I say they have one, they answer it. Yeah. Another one, they answer it. But eventually the prospect says, usually immediately, no, I don't have any more questions. So the Pixie Homecrafter person says, well, let me give you one. Other than the price and payments, would there be any reason you couldn't get your job started today? 
And it's almost always the money. You don't invite a gutter person out to your house to look at your gutters and have some interest in replacing, you know, at least some. So other than price or payments. And the guy says, no, that's probably it most of the time. If not, there's ways around that. Most of the time they go, no, that's pretty much what it comes down to. And they reach across, shake their hand, say, congratulations. I promise you I'm not going to let price or payments stand in the way of you getting what you want. Then they present the pricing, and they present the pricing just like they presented the product. It's a scripted, planned presentation. And then at the end, here's the price, and then if need be, we can call the office and see if we can't do it some different way and so on. And they have an astounding closing rate. How long have you been working with that client? He likes to say a little over 20 years. But part of that time was he bought some of my materials, and I didn't know who he was or what he was doing with them. And that's almost every client I have today, large clients, started out, they went in a bookstore and got a book. One of my biggest clients was at a garage sale one day, saw the closers, figured they had something to do with selling, picked it up, paid a dollar for the book, and he today is one of our biggest clients. So Dixie Homecrafters, Hugh Harris, the CEO, is very kind to say we worked together over 20 years, but I'd say probably the first three or four years of that, I didn't know it. And now formally and intensely, somewhere between 15 and 17 years. All from a porn-up book that you found when you called that classified ad. Yep. Pretty amazing. Well, it is, but, you know, it's when opportunity meets preparation. Or as Arnold Palmer said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. You created and taught the famous People Builders program for the inmates and staff in California's infamous San Quentin State Prison. How did that come about? I was sitting in my home at that time in Marin County, right on San Francisco Bay, having, I like to say, retired. My former employee would have said been fired, but a mutual agreement. <laughs> I was no longer working with them. I had a lot of money, thanks to them and my hard work. And I was 30 years old, and I was quickly discovering that retirement was not a splendid idea for someone with a fertile mind because you get up with nothing to do, and my mother used to say the idle hands or the devil's workshop or something like that. And I found myself confusing activity with achievement, to put it one way. So I'm sitting there thinking, what can I do that would be interesting and make some money? And I look across that portion of San Francisco Bay that separated my house from what looked like a hill, but right behind the hill was San Quentin. And from my perch, my little eagle's roost office up on top of the house, I could see the smokestack of San Quentin. So I zeroed in on that thought. Minus the smokestack, I probably would have just looked at the hill for a while. And I thought, San Quentin, what a great challenge that would be to show the success principles I've been living by and teaching and so on for the past X number of years actually work. What greater challenge? So I made a preliminary phone call, I think, hopped in my car, drove around the bay and pulled up to Red Nelson's office. He was the warden at the time went in and gave my proposal. He and the associate warden at the time, Clem Swaggerty, listened intently, and they'd attended a couple of things that I had spoken at before, so they knew I wasn't some derelict off the street, and they listened. They said, well, we'd like to do this, and I said, fantastic. They said, what do you figure it's going to cost us? And I hadn't really thought about that, but I said, well, why don't we do, I come in teach for 12 hours from 6 at night to 6 in the morning. Red Nelson could do anything he wanted, so we worked out that we could get clearance to do that, have inmates out of their cells for 12 straight hours. I said, I want to make it intense. And they said, fine. I said, we'll do it every Friday night to Saturday morning. They said, fine. So I said, that's four days of my time, really. So, I don't know, 10000 a month. 
Now, this is 36 years ago. I was 30, now I'm 66. And they said, that'll be fine. And Clem got up and went and got a bunch of stuff, and they shoved this big pile of papers in front of me. I said, what's that? And they said, well, these are the forms you have to fill out. And, of course, it's got to go to the so-and-so agency and the so-and-so board and the this and the that. And then he said, I'm going to approve it, but that's my recommendation. I said, how long is this going to take? And they said, oh, well, we're going to push it through. Year, year and a half. And I said, how much would it be if I did it for free? <laughs> Red Nelson said, we can start this afternoon. So about an hour after that conversation, I was standing in front of, I think we had about 300 inmates at the first introductory session, chatting with them. And that's how I spent from Friday night to Saturday morning, 52 weeks a year for the next five years. You did that for five years? Mm-hmm. Yep. You did that every week? Every week. On a Friday? Friday night, 6 p.m., I'd go in about 5.30 and be in class with them by 6 and go to 6 in the morning. Very interesting. Yeah, it was fascinating. The recidivism rate in California state prisons at the time, and I read some in a paper the other day that indicated nothing much has changed, was about 87%, meaning 87% of people they let loose were back in custody of some sort in two years. The recidivism rate of the graduates of people builders with five years to study it, now many years since I detached from it, was less than 5%. That's absolutely honest. Now, in my old age, let me go one step further, because sometimes you can exaggerate things by omission. We significantly changed the lives of a lot of people with their help and cooperation and hard work. But the type of inmate, convict, they prefer to be called when you reach the San Quentin level, the type of convict that would give up his Friday night, which is the only night he gets to watch movies, and go all the way to Saturday morning, and if he has a visitor Saturday morning, he won't have had any sleep, is a different kind of cat, perhaps, than many of the inmates, if you see what I mean. And maybe he was more motivated to get out and stay out than your average person. I'll skew that a little bit and say it wasn't the class that dropped it from 87% to 5%, but some figures significantly less than 87% is true. People Builder was the content based on stuff you were experiencing, like with Holiday Magic? Well, People Builders was just a name I came up with because I used to give a speech saying we're not in the cosmetic business, we're in the people building business. So I just coined the term. So when I went to San Quentin, they said, we have to have a name to put in the program. I said, call it People Builders. After five years, what brought the end to that? I moved up here, and we're up in Placerville, 136 miles exactly from the front gate of San Quentin, and I made the trip several times. And I had always told them from the very first night, I said, I will be here so long as this is the best place for me and my family to have me be and where I want to be the most. Well, after, I don't know, two, three, four trips of 136 miles each way, which eats up half a Friday all Friday night, Saturday morning, and half a Saturday getting home. And then you're dead tired. I decided that wasn't a good idea. So I was given another opportunity. There was a warden at Folsom State Prison. Johnny Cash made it famous. Warden's first name was Jack. I forget what his last name was. He knew I'd moved up to the area. Somebody ratted me out to use prison terminology. So he called me and he said, I'd like you to come over here and teach that people builders program at Folsom. Well, Folsom is about the same distance from my house today as San Quentin was from my house in Marin County. I thought, well, that's doable. I said, all right, I'll come down and take a look. So I went down. Well, there's Old Folsom, which is like an English dungeon of 300 years ago, and that's what was there at the time. They've since built New Folsom, which is pretty architecturally, but they lock you in a room and that's the end of it, like a supermax. 
So anyway, Jack walked me up to the front gate of this old thing that you would use if you were filming a horror movie. The rusty gate swung open. I knew the sound at San Quentin. They were a little newer, but not much. And I walked into the sally port, and they slammed behind me. And I turned to Jack, and I said, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to come down here. The work I did at San Quentin was some of the most interesting I've ever done in my life. It's there that I met Charlie Manson and spent a good deal of time with him and so on. You meet really fascinating people. And I said, I'm not downgrading my experience at San Quentin, but it just dawned on me. If you give me the tour, I'd love to have it. But if it's based on I'm going to teach the class, I want to tell you right now I'm not going to do it. I've heard that sound behind me too many times and he laughed and he said I understand and he opened up the other sally port door and gave me a full tour of the cell blocks and everything and I went home and that was the end of it so you didn't want to teach it you know my age is a factor age 66 now I can't stay up all night no I understand <laughs> yell and scream and no, you did it for five years yeah I think I sort of did my thing and I've got good friends that came out of those classes in time the staff began to come and in the last year or so that I was there we had convicts staff and staff's family in the class you're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's hard to find seminars.com do you hear from any of your convict students many and the correctional officers I started to say guards they don't like to be called guards but the correctional officers have stayed in touch it took me more time to win over the guards than it did the inmates. The inmates, I was really blunt with, and I know how to talk service talk and prison talk, so I talk considerably different to them than I do to you. It's sort of like Marine talk when you're charging the hill. The reason the guards were harder to win over is they have seen a never-ending string of well-meaning, bleeding-heart liberals coming in to save the poor prisoners from the unjust court system and make them feel worse about themselves than before they got there. When I came in, the inmates were expecting that. When I walked to the front of the room, it was sort of like scared straight in reverse. Instead of the convicts scaring the kids, it was me scaring the convicts. You can stick with your way of life. You can play it any way you want. However, it isn't working. And, you know, I'd spend maybe a whole night on that subject. One guy asked me, he said, what's in it for you? I mean, there's something going on. I said, they're not paying me anything. I got a feeling it's going to cost me a lot of money. He said, well, then really, what is in it for you? I brought the class to a halt, had guards come over. You don't just casually wander around San Quentin. They're called movements, you know. Guards brought over, and I said, I want you to go back to your cell, every single one of you people, with your little legal pads, and I want you to write down everything you have, everything you own, and I want you back in this room in 30 minutes, because maybe I'm missing something. Maybe you got something I really want. And if you do, then you and I will talk individually. Well, they got the message before they left the room, but they came back, you know, one 12-inch black and white television, two army blankets, <laughs> a Bible, and so on. But the guards were much slower coming around. They thought I was there to put them down and that I was going to try and spring these people who had been wrongly convicted. Well, there are people in prison who are innocent, but the vast majority of people in prison are there for the right reason and could have been caught for other things and probably ought to be there longer. Do you remember what you and Manson talked about? Did you have one-on-one conversation with him? Yeah, I did. One day, Terry Wooster, the lieutenant, who was usually on duty when I was there at nights and became an integral part of the program, he and his family went through the program several times. It was 12 weeks, and we'd graduate, and you could come back, but we'd get a new group also and do another 12 and another 12 and so on. Anyway, one day, Charlie back then was not allowed in the general population. Again, he's not today. He's 
down at Corcoran State Prison in Central California. You remember, he didn't kill anybody. He directed others to... I don't know if he got the death penalty or not. The death penalty was overturned right about the time the Manson family went through. Two or three got death penalties and got them overturned. I'm not sure Charlie was part of that, but he does have life without possibility of parole. And he was kept in what's called the Adjustment Center. And the Adjustment Center is a freestanding building right on the main courtyard at San Quentin. So when I came in every night, by happenstance, he could look out his cell across the chasm to the next wall on the catwalk, and the window, you could see sort of me coming in and into the classroom and the door shutting, and then he could watch the class through one of the windows, all from his cell. So one day, he sent word through somebody, and it got to Wooster, who is that guy? What's he doing? And so on. And then a week or so later, Wooster said, he wants you to meet him. I said, well, bring him down. He said, he is such a funny guy. He said, we don't bring Charlie down. You go to Charlie. So I said, well, fine. I said, I could go in the adjustment center. He said, you can't just wander in. I had free reign of the prison. I could go anywhere but the adjustment center and death row anytime. It's a big yard. Do anything I wanted to do. And I was young enough and stupid enough to actually do it. So anyway, he said, fine. Now I go over to the adjustment center, and that's where they just had the probably don't recall it, but the Jackson shootout, an inmate allegedly, it doesn't make any sense, went to visit with his lawyer who gave him a gun and a wig, and he put the gun under the wig and walked all the way back into the adjustment center through all the checks and body searches and so on. That makes no sense whatsoever. That's what happened, they say, but I'm telling you, it didn't happen. But the end result was, and I'm making up numbers, like 10 dead guards and 10 or 14 dead convicts right at the door where you go into the adjustment center. That's where the whole thing took place. So I get to that door, and there's still stains on the sidewalk. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. And then they said, there's some forms you have to sign. And I said, well, I've already signed the permanent forms. You know, these are the things that say when you come in, you're on your own. If you're taken hostage, we will not negotiate for your release. If we have to shoot the convict through you, we will. So you have to sign that just to get inside the prison. Now I'm going inside the adjustment center. I said, well, I've already signed that. I said, you haven't signed this one. It was the first message on steroids. So in we go and go up to, I think it was the second, if not the third tier. Charlie Manson's cell was on the end and walked up and he was expecting me. And he said, Mr. Gay, how are you? And I said, Mr. Manson, how are you? And they unlocked the cell and in I went. I thought we were going to talk through the bars. I frequently did that while walking the cell blocks. And in I went and was locked in with him. First of all, any physical intimidation instantly went away. He's a tiny little guy, about the size of Sammy Davis Jr., not big at all or anything. And I spent that night about two, two and a half hours, and then on another visit, and then on another visit. So probably six to seven hours grand total with him, just chatting. And you know, people say, well, were you scared? No, because of the situation. I've been in there for two, three years by this time. And not by any physical intimidation of his, but I was fascinated. That I will admit. First of all, he's crazy, obviously. But he's not crazy like you've seen him in the interviews. He does that for the cameras on cue. For instance, we'd be sitting there talking sort of like you and I are right now, and a guard would walk by, and he'd leap up and go, booga, 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 and, you know, run us the thing and everything, and go, yeah, right, Charlie. The people in the adjustment center had seen the act enough. But we had a reasonably normal conversation, except for the subject matter, and the subject matter was a variety of things. He wanted to know what I was doing. I figured that's turnabout's fair play. We swapped stories and mm-hmm. so on. But I said, how did you do it? If you remember those kids, they came from middle-class and upper-middle-class families. Most of them had pretty good educations or were on the way to having a pretty good education. I said, 
how did you get them? He said, they were lost and young and stupid. He said, I could have done it with anyone, but it would have taken longer. He said, I took the path of least resistance, wandering around, unattached, young, and stupid. Now, add to that a deep understanding of psychology, however primitive it may be. I mean, he was living in the California Youth Authority. He's been in prison off and on, like six months at a time, out maximum, since he was 12. So it wasn't like he went to Harvard, but somehow he has an animal instinct for psychology and philosophy and the ability to explain it in simplified terms, probably because that's all he can talk in. I could have sat with Sigmund Freud and probably not understood anything he said, but I could sit with Charlie Manson, learn the same lesson, and he wouldn't use any word that had more than five letters in it. And then his eyes we sort of did the stare down for a while, and then we both admitted we were doing that. His eyes, when they look at you, go in your eyes and out the back of your head. Piercing. Piercing. And you sort of forget, while you're talking to him, he sort of mutates into somebody that's not crazy old Charlie Manson. Jerry Wooster said, you don't want to stay in there too long, you'll start thinking he's sane. Wow, very interesting. Any one story you can think of of a previous convict that really was able to stay out and change their life and do yeah, something great? one. His name is Joe Mack, and when I went into San Quentin, he was on death row. I didn't know that, but that's where he was. Almost simultaneously with me beginning to teach, he came off of death row. He'd appealed his sentence. I'm not going to justify his situation, but it was a ridiculous sentence for what he did. And even what he did isn't what he was accused of doing. But he was not leading a good life. He was a pimp, a drug dealer, a bar owner, and had gone out to meet with a guy about some dispute over territory or something. And a gun was pulled by the other guy. And Joe, fighting it off, twisted his arm around, and the gun went off, and it shot the other guy, who lived. But he said that Joe kidnapped him drew a gun on him, and it was one of those drop guns that you can't prove who it belongs to. So that story stuck, and Joe wound up on death row. So anyway, he appeals, and he got it changed to life without possibility of parole. As much time as I've spent in prison, let me tell you, I'd rather have the death penalty personally if they just get on with it, not leave me there for 20 years like they do now in California, but get on with it. Life without possibility holds no interest to me. That's Did he get out? Well, that's what he had. And then I was teaching also down at the Crystal Cathedral, Robert Schuler's church, The Hour of Power on television. And when I say teaching, I was doing an occasional speech down there for their possibility thinker luncheons and possibility thinker breakfast. Well, they always wanted to hear the San Quentin story, so I would tell them. And my favorite guy there, he was really a neat guy. You would have sworn he was a college graduate ski instructor if you met him. People wouldn't believe what he had been involved in when they met Joe and talked to him. So they would say, well, tell us about your favorite guy or the most interesting story. And I'd tell them about the visits with Charlie Mann. They were always fascinated by that. And then I would say, but the guy I work with, my contact inside, and the president of People Builders is Joe Mack. And so every time I went down, they wanted an update on Joe Mack. Meanwhile, Joe is still continuing to appeal his sentence, and he finally got it reduced to life. And with life, you can have parole. Meanwhile, he was the head of SCOPE, the Special Committee on Parolee Employment. Although he was doing life, his job was to get contacts on the outside and get released inmates' jobs. And he was president of the Jewish congregation, although he wasn't Jewish when he went in. And he was president of People Builders. And the guards thought the world of him. So he's appealing, fighting that, then trying to get his parole. So one day I'm down at the Crystal Cathedral, and I said hi, and I gave my little talk. And they said, now, you can't leave without telling us how Joe Mack is doing. And I said, well, as you know, he started on death row, life without possibility of parole, life. 
which could mean seven years in parole. It hardly ever does, but it could. And, you know, his goal was always to come down here with me on one of my trips, because I would tell him all about you guys, and stand on the altar here with me and tell you how he's turned his life around. And they all cheered and all that. Well, if you feel that way, turn around. Let's watch Joe Matt take his last 67 steps on the way to the altar at the Crystal Cathedral. And I paced it off from where I sat, and Joe came forward, and the place went nuts. So he did get out. He got out. He's living up at Lake Tahoe now, and he's doing fine. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate it. You've been very generous with your time. Excellent. You're a neat guy. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. That's the end of my interview, part two, with Ben Gay. I hope it's been helpful. For more information on Ben Gay's seminars, books, and products in the Closer series, go to www.bengaytheclosers.com. That's www.bengaythe.closers, C-L-O-S-E-R-S, Dot com.